You could probably tell we're coming in at the end of the story. It's a long story, a short novella at the end of Genesis. It starts in chapter 37, and it runs all the way through the end of the book, the end of chapter 50. Some parts of the story are famous, the coat of many colors that Jacob gave to his favorite son, Joseph. Some parts stand out in my mind from a childhood spent in Sunday school that took flannel graph very, very seriously. I mean, I remember clearly Joseph's dreams of greatness, his dream of being in the field with his brothers, his older brothers, when suddenly all of their sheaves of grain bowed down to his. His dream of 11 stars and the sun and the moon bowing down to him. You don't have to be a dream expert prodigy to realize this kid thinks we're all going to worship him. I remember the rage that drove his brothers to murder him, to plan to murder him. Their plan to kill him and throw him in a pit. I remember his oldest brother Reuben talking them off the ledge and hatching a plan to get Joseph home safely. I remember that before Reuben could do anything, the other brothers sold him into slavery and took his fancy coat and splattered it with goat's blood to show their father he was dead. I remember that Joseph was a slave in the house of Potiphar and rose through the ranks until he ran the wealthy, powerful Egyptian's household, until Potiphar's wife sexually harassed him and his refusal landed him in prison. There was a lot made in Sunday school about Joseph's chastity, believe it or not. I remember Joseph in prison, impersonating, uh, interpreting dreams with such wisdom that he ended up in the house of Pharaoh who needed a dream interpreter. From there, by the time he was 30, Joseph rode in the chariot of the second in command under Pharaoh and ruled all Egypt. He helped to prepare for a coming famine by what amounted to taxing what the people grew and then selling it back to them. I remember that that's how he came to be in power when his brothers came to him toward the end of the story. I remember how at least three different times his brothers bowed down to him, eventually all 11 of them. I remember that when Joseph finally told his brothers who he was, he did it in private, but he cried so loudly that the whole household of the Pharaoh heard. I remember the brothers' fear that Joseph would take revenge after their father had died, that he would exact justice, and I remember Joseph forgiving them. We've come in at the end of the story. When Joseph says, even though you intended to do harm to me, God meant it for good. In many translations, he says, even though you meant evil, God meant it for good. The end of the story was in 2003, when Lewis Jones Jr. was put to death. Lewis is still the last person that the federal government executed. The people who loved him, his daughter Barbara, his friend and lawyer, Tim Floyd, who's how I know about Luke, they remembered more of the story than just the end. They knew that Lewis had been raised in Chicago, that he was a single parent to Barbara, a grandparent to her two kids, that he was an Iraq war vet who came home changed, a change that people noticed years before the government admitted he was one of maybe 100,000 soldiers who was exposed to sarin nerve gas. When they admitted it, they said, don't worry, it wasn't that much nerve gas. The woman Lewis murdered was named Tracy McBride. She was 19 years old when she died, and she would be my age now. She grew up in the Twin Cities, where she was an arts kid. She was in the band and the choir and theater. She talked about becoming a music teacher after college. 
During basic training, Tracy was so cheerful that her drill instructor nicknamed her Guy Smiley. Like in basic training, she was that smiley. She was dating a Marine. If she'd lived, she'd have at least seven nieces and nephews. If she'd lived, this would be a whole different story for her family, <clears throat> for her. Especially in the face of evil, people have questions. People want to understand. Was God involved in this? How was God involved? Did God allow it to happen? Did God cause it to happen? Did God just look the other way? What does it mean? I mean, in the grand scheme of things, what does it mean? Where was God in this genocide, in this shooting, in this premature death, in this diagnosis, in this state of affairs, in this terrible crime? The desire for understanding can be so strong, especially in the face of evil and loss, that once we find answers, we tend to hang on to them. Certainly, certainty, especially in the face of overwhelming loss, can be comforting. There is some solid ground, even in the midst of chaos. Joseph's brothers found an answer, and they clung to it. In the wake of migrating to a new country, in the wake of the terror that their children might starve to death in a famine, and a swirl of grief after their father's death with fear over how their now powerful little brother might treat them now that their dad is dead, their answer is to offer themselves to Joseph as slaves. After all, they had sold him as a slave. How better could justice be served? Their answer in the midst of chaos is justice. And justice for them is based on reciprocity. At the very least, in the midst of chaos, they have clarity. They will now be slaves, and the wrong they've done will be balanced out. There will be justice. But Joseph denies it to them. He denies them justice. He wields his power not to enslave them, and instead he demands that they give up something more radical than their freedom. He demands that they give up their belief that they can understand what has happened. He demands that they give up the idea that they can make sense of the evil they did and what happened as a result of it. It's so human and ordinary to want to make sense out of things. It's so ordinary that Joseph's brothers would rather have something they can get their heads around, even if it means being enslaved. That want, I mean, it addresses a deep, deep need for answers and understanding, especially when things have been upended. But Joseph won't give them that satisfaction. Based on his understanding of God, he can't. He can't give them that satisfaction. When they plead for it by asking his forgiveness and then declaring that they are his slaves, first he tells them, don't be afraid. And then he asks, am I in the place of God? He's not, of course, however powerful he is. But more importantly, not only is there a difference between being Joseph and being God, there's a difference between their understanding of God and Joseph's understanding of God. Joseph's understanding of God is that whatever has happened, whatever has been done, whatever they intended, God intends for the good. Joseph looks back over his whole story, 
overhearing his brother's plan to kill him and being sold into slavery and being sexually harassed by his boss's spouse and being in prison, he looks back over it and he sees good pushing up through the concrete of facts. Not everyone can do that. Sometimes the people, sometimes the evil that people have experienced, whether it's intentional at the hands of others or not, Sometimes the evil we've experienced is so great that people cannot tell their story in a way that reveals any goodness. They've been too greatly harmed, like their eyes for goodness have suffered a terminal blow. Sometimes other people, in response to evil, find answers that, yes, help make sense of what has happened, but might leave them clinging to rage or bitterness. They have been wounded, and for many reasons, they cannot tell their stories in any other way. In the awful reality of Tracy McBride's murder and Lewis Jones Jr.'s execution, there is so much evil. There's the evil of war and sending people to war. There's the evil of a country where some people can afford education only if they join the military. That was Tracy's primary reason for enlisting. That's how she and Lewis crossed paths. There is the evil of the damage that veterans suffer for the sake of a country that will not take care of them properly when they get back. A country that will lie about and try to cover up the damage that has been done. There is the great, terrible to remember evil of the violence that Lou very carefully and very intentionally did to Tracy. There's the evil of the family torn apart by her murder. There's the evil of a daughter of a single parent grieving his coming death at the hands of the state. There's the evil of the death penalty and how it's used disproportionately against people of color and poor people and mentally ill people. Soon after Lou confessed and got to prison, he met people who were working with a prison ministry. And in those ministers and lay people, he experienced a kindness that he might not have experienced too much of before. In his own story, there was childhood physical and sexual abuse, which of course is no excuse for what he did, but it's also an evil. In prison, he converted to Christianity. <laughs> a friend of mine who does prison ministry said that he gets a lot of criticism about people converting to Christianity in jail. He says that people say, how, many, how come so many people in prison can convert? That's pretty convenient. And he says it's like asking, how, many, how come so many people with broken legs go to the hospital? Pretty big coincidence. <coughs> anyway, Luke converted. And after he did, he tried to love others in the same way that he felt loved by the ministers and by God. He and his lawyer, Tim Floyd, who's also a Christian, they got to be friends, like real friends, and they shared a love of scripture. Tim argued for years, trying to get Lou's sentence changed to life without parole. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And Tim showed judges evidence of Lou's brain damage from the nerve gas, but in the end, the Supreme Court declined the appeal. And the remaining hope was that President George W. Bush would commute the sentence. And then the day before the execution, Tim got a call that the execution would go ahead. For Tracy McBride's family, this came as a huge relief. The appeals process had been exhausting and painful. Hearing about Lou's brain damage was infuriating. Lots of people had Gulf War syndrome and they didn't kill anyone. They were so ready for it to be over. And it being over looked like Lou's death. 
The family's pastor said that he is forgiving, but that forgiveness wasn't the issue. This was one of the most heinous crimes, he said, and that's right. The death penalty, he said, it wasn't so much vengeance against Lewis Jones, but, he said, there needs to be justice for the crime, and justice is the death penalty. Tracy's family, I mean, surely they were people so damaged by evil that they were looking for answers. Surely people who can't see any good, I mean, what good is there to see in their story? After all those years of Sunday school, there's something I misremembered from the Joseph story. All those details, there's something big that I missed. Joseph doesn't forgive his brothers. When they come to him with their answer in hand, let justice be served, let us be your slaves, forgive us. He denies them that too. He says, don't be afraid. He says, I'm not God. He says, I'll provide for you and your little ones. He never addresses forgiveness at all. He just gives his own answer, which is that even the most intentional evil cannot undermine the goodness that God intends. God can and does take the most intentional evil and transform it for God's purposes. God, in whose hands, not Joseph's, rests forgiveness and absolution, or maybe not, Joseph doesn't make a guess at that. God always intends for good. Or at least that's how I hear it. That in the midst of chaos, in the face of great and terrible evil, God is always, always willing the good. Making it possible for goodness to emerge, making it possible for us to see it, making it possible that human beings who are capable of great evil might also care for one another in the wake of suffering. Makes it possible that human beings were just made of dirt and water, really. That we would have eyes to see one another when we have been damaged beyond healing. That we might sometimes be gentle with each other. That in the wake of pain and grief, we would know there is some solid ground under all of us. It is the goodness of God. On the day of Lou's execution, really early in the morning, Lou and Tim, his lawyer friend, gathered with a minister and with the prison chaplain and with Lou's daughter, Barbara. They took communion and then the chaplain invited them to pray, said that anyone who wanted to should pray. The minister prayed, the chaplain prayed, Tim prayed, Barbara stayed quiet. Um, Lou was the last one in the circle. They were a circle formed on both sides of a dividing glass. Lou was behind the glass apart from the others. A murderer, a vet, a father, a grandfather, having experienced and committed terrible, terrible evil. He closed his eyes and tilted his head back and began his prayer. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Two hours later, he was dead. He's buried in a civilian cemetery here in Chicago. For Tracy's family, in fact, it wasn't over, or <coughs> part of it was. Now Tracy's mom said that day the healing could begin. What is it that allows some people to retell their own stories? What is it that liberates some people? Even people who've experienced what Tracy's family did sometimes. 
What is it that liberates some people to see God's goodness undergirding everything? What gives people that capacity? What lets people release their fear? I release you, I release you, I release you, I release you. Whatever it is, we should work like hell to make sure people have it. To make sure we have it. I mean, because we're going to need it. There is enough evil to go around. And it's real. Because of that, it is so essential for our survival and thriving that we know the goodness of God is real too. It's the solid ground on which everything else is built. While we're busy seeking answers or making them up or clinging to them, God is busy imputing goodness everywhere, allowing it to break through, giving us eyes to see it, and breath to tell it. 